Now we're going to go into Revelation and uh, we're going to dip into chapters 6 through to 9, which is quite a lot. We're not, don't worry, we'll only be about four or five hours. Be fine. <laughs> be fine. You'll be home for bedtime anyway. Uh, no, but I'm, I'm quite glad you all had an extra hour in bed today. <laughs> Hopefully you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed because there's a lot in these chapters and of course I'm not going to do them all in detail but if you ever read through Revelation 6 to 9 and I trust you will or actually if you read Revelation 6 to 19 you will end up with your head spinning and you'll be thinking this is quite impressive but it's also quite confusing and scary what is this Am I in this? Will this happen when I'm around? Or will it only be after I've gone? And all the questions that Christians sort of often ask about all these things where you get seven seals being undone, seven bowls, uh, seven trumpets being blown, seven bowls being poured out, and a lot of other things as well. And I felt that at the beginning, for just a few minutes, maybe five, ten minutes, I just wanted to give some heading thoughts about how I would want you to think when you're reading these chapters or things to notice and then I want to focus on one particular aspect one character which I hope God will use to speak to us uh, this morning but I do feel it's it's helpful to at least make a comment about Revelation because it's quite a pretty remarkable book and it and you think well what is going on here so here's some quick pointers first of all and you will know some of this most of you not all of you Revelation is what's called apocalyptic literature Now, apocalyptic literature is a type of literature. We do have different sorts of literature ourselves. We have poems, we have prose, we have drama. You know, we know what different literature is. And you don't read a poem the same way as you read a prose description of a scientific experiment or a prose description of putting something together, where you look at every detail, think, okay, where's that? Left, right, okay, got a screw there. Whatever it is, a poem is, makes sense, but you read it differently. You can analyse it in detail, it's not wrong to, but it is a totally different sort of literature. Novels, drama, poetry. Well, this is apocalyptic literature, which is a style of literature, which was around a lot in the times of the Bible, uh, Old, Old Testament a bit, you get it a bit with Ezekiel and Daniel and in the New Testament. It's vivid, it's colourful, it is prophetic, definitely, so it's foretelling, but it's not merely prophetic, and I think the nearest parallel to us is probably something like dramas or films, where you're caught up in it and you begin to almost experience what's going on. It, it should impact you, and it does, of course. It is also, and this is important, deliberately full of symbols, deliberately full of symbols. They're symbols that are meant to ring a bell if you are one of the initiated, in this case a Christian active following Jesus. They're meant to make sense to you, but the uninitiated will be more confused and hopefully, in some cases, you'll see why, not quite get it. Because quite often, this literature is used in times of persecution and antagonism to God's people. And it's a way of communicating vividly and livingly, and I believe the Holy Spirit inspires it, just as he inspires letters. Letters are a form of literature. 
Paul wrote letters to people. They were ordinary letters, but the Holy Spirit was inspiring them. This is something that stirred John. He had visions. He was caught up in the Spirit, and he, he, he executes it in what we call apocalyptic literature. And, the, and, and it's meant to communicate vividly to Christians, but maybe, for example, the Roman authorities might not see that there's a bit of hidden criticism in there as well. So Revelation, at its most appropriate speaks to us when we're conscious of the difficulties in our world, when we're conscious of the battles we all face, and, of, and particularly when Christians are having a tough time or being persecuted, it's very relevant. So let's go on quickly. There's a fundamental theme, which is God is in control. So that's a theme that comes out through, all, through the whole book. God is always in control. He's on his throne And Jesus is by his side. Again and again, Revelation reminds us of the sovereignty of God and his oversight in all things. And of course, there is no doubt how everything ends. God wins, the title of our whole series. And and it comes to that climax deliberately. Next thing, the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. The seven bowls are in chapter 16 and around that area. I would personally believe, and a lot of commentators do, refer to the same era. So in other words, it's not chronological. You get seven bowls, seals, I beg your pardon, then later on seven trumpets, then later on seven bowls, and they all happen uh, you know, chronologically through history, making 21. Is that right? 21, three sevens of 21, yeah. 21 sort of separate interventions that you have to match up in history. They're not quite like that. They are more about, all of them, are about the same era, the era that we are, we are generally living in. That is the period between when Jesus went back to heaven and when Jesus comes back again to wrap everything up. So they refer to what you might call AD history. Now, actually, Jesus referred to this period in a sort of almost apocalyptic way, and you can read it for yourself in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. And reading those chapters, I think, helps you to grasp a little of the feel of Revelation. They are slightly interpretative. So, for example, let me give you a quote from one of those. Matthew 24, it'll go up. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. This is Jesus' warning to his disciples. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. The birth pains for the new heavens and new earth, the new age when Jesus comes back. So Jesus says there's going to be a build-up of these sort of things all through the time when the gospel is going out into the whole world. The gospel of the good news of the kingdom of God, which will go to the whole earth. Now these middle chapters of Revelation sort of are covering something a bit similar to what Jesus is writing about there. A way I found it quite helpful once I read it many years ago was if you think of uh, our own experience historically in this country, the Second World War. If you think of the Second World War, it's a period of six years, 1939 to 45. You can watch all sorts of different films on the Second World War. You can watch films, maybe documentary style, about the Atlantic War, about uh, the Blitz, about what was going on in the extermination camps, about what was going on in 
Churchill's war cabinet, what was going on in Alamein in the desert, what, uh, the, the war in the east with Russia, uh, and so on and so forth. And they're actually all about the same essential conflict, but from different perspectives and angles. They're all showing you different aspects, these different films, of what was going on in that six-year period. And whilst this was going on in, the, uh, in, in Downing Street, that might have been going on over there, and whatever and whatever. And Churchill was trying to meet with uh, Roosevelt, and, and, and meanwhile, the Atlantic War. And so you've actually got that sort of feel about revelation, that you're seeing things from different angles. Heaven's perspective, demonic activity, God's judgments, human sin, human reaction to God's judgment, God's reaction to human reaction, I can even say. And in the midst of it all, the church, which is, the church of Jesus Christ, is the key aspect from heaven's perspective. And it's it's heaven's uh, jewel, if you like. Although that doesn't mean the church has an easy time. Far from it. Okay, quickly to move on. It's wrong to approach, a wrong approach, beg your pardon, to try and explain the details of each vision. In other words, to say this is that. You know, that was Mao Zedong, that's Hitler, that is, you know, uh, I don't know, Chernobyl. You get stuff like that all through, Christians doing that all the time. That really isn't the best approach to Revelation. One commentator said a logical apocalypse would be a contradiction in terms. A logical apocalypse. It isn't working like that. It is vivid, powerful imagery. It is almost mystical at times. It's not like that equals exactly that in history. I could give you an example. We haven't time to turn to it. If you looked at the demonic locusts in Revelation 9, you want to have a scary thing just before you go to bed read the demonic locusts revelation 9 about verses 7 to 11 they are pretty hideous they are pretty weird and incredible and they are demonic forces released bringing war on the earth now christians notoriously can look at that and try and say ah that's about apache attack helicopters he was seeing a Apache helicopters or he was seeing stealth bombers or something else. And, and you, we, you come from your perspective and try and interpret it. I would say biblical symbols like that are not quite interpreted that way. They are not a precise type of helicopter in the 21st century or, or, or an aeroplane. That doesn't mean that the aeroplanes, the attack helicopters and, and stealth bombers, aren't, they are there because this is about war. This is about wars and that there's a sense that demons are behind war, that demonic forces are released that bring scary and hideous things into the world. And so, yes, nuclear war could be in there, but it's not the only thing that's in there. And there's, there's a sense that you have to catch the feel of it and the impact of it rather than try and drill down and say, what exactly is that? There's a rather chilling aspect to it as you read through that those who experience these terrible things rarely repent and return to God but actually that's what we're supposed to be doing we're supposed to be turning to God but often people end up shaking their fist at God when this happens and instead of turning from their sin they actually don't say we're not the evil ones God's the evil one and that is a sad fact that often does occur and then finally on these general points in the chapters we're looking at, and indeed throughout, throughout it really, there is a mysterious figure who is a central player. The Lamb. <laughs> the Lamb. And so as part of my talk, don't treat this as a subsidiary thing, I'm going to read a few excerpts from these chapters where the Lamb will appear. 
And then we're going to take the last few minutes, last half, (laughs) to unpack who the lamb is and we're going to break bread together. So let's just listen to a few bits. We're going to read Revelation 5. You can follow it if you want to on a tablet or on your Bible. Revelation 5 and verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, which is God, of course, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he'd taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of the incense, which is the prayers of God's people. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to open the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Let's just excerpts. Let's just read chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its, re- its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Then then the lamb opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales. And this is about famine, it's about need, you know, money, food, needing a day's wages just for a meal sort of thing. Verse 7, when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse, and its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a core of the earth to kill by sword and famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Let's drop down to verse 12. I watched as the lamb, that is, opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when it's shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, everyone else, slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and rocks fall on us hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb but the great day of their wrath for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it one more revelation 7 just picking it up at verse 9 after this i looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation tribe 
people and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now that's just a taste of much that's in there. But I notice, I hope you noticed, that the lamb features a lot. So let's ask a few questions and make a few points. The lamb, who is he? Who is the lamb? Okay, here's a verse. He's Jesus. Someone's on the metal. He's on the, on the, on the money. He's Jesus. Look at John 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So actually, John writing his gospel refers to him as the Lamb of God, which is what he heard John the Baptist say. And Christians know that the Lamb of God is Jesus Christ. Now, he's referred to by Paul as our Passover Lamb. We won't bother to put that verse up. I don't think I've got it on the PowerPoint. And then there's one other reference showing that all the apostles wrote like this. Peter wrote this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So all of the apostles writing, Paul, you've got John, you've got Peter, they all know, all Christians, the church know, we're talking about Jesus. When we talk about the Lamb of God, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, born as a, a baby from Mary, an ordinary person at one level, grew up as the carpenter of Nazareth, was working with his father till the age of 30. Then suddenly something happened. It became very obvious that he was special in a way that hadn't been before. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit, his baptism. He began to do amazing miracles, amazing things happened. People loved his teaching. He gathered followers together. He was bringing hope and help to everyone. He healing all oppressed of the devil. And then suddenly there was a swing, or it appeared suddenly, though he knew it was coming, where people turned on him, particularly the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but the Romans and the, even the crowd, and everybody got involved, and he was tried in a kangaroo court, crucified on a Roman cross, died, buried, disciples distressed, and wondered what was happening. Three days later, he rose from the dead. They were amazed. They had to be persuaded to believe it. They didn't automatically believe it. He met them many times. He met up to 500 of them on one occasion. And people began to say, he's alive, he's alive. Told each other, he's victorious from the grave. 
he went, he met with his disciples, he taught them about why he had done what he'd done, what it was all about. He showed them how Isaiah 53 was about the suffering saviour. He showed them how it made sense that the Passover lamb was a picture of what he'd done to take away sin. He brought it together and the lamb of God thing made utter sense. This was the fulfilment where all sin was dealt with in him. Then he went back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit and the Lamb of God is now in heaven and the Holy Spirit is working in the church. Amen. That's who that they knew. That's who he is. So the Lamb of God is the man Christ Jesus raised from the dead at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The Lamb, next one, is Lord of history. This is a big, big message that John saw. Had it had it burnt into him out of this vision. It wasn't John thought it up, but he then put it vividly down as, he, as God impacted him with this vision that actually Jesus is in charge of history. This scroll in the right hand of God contains the purposes of God in history. And, and it, its disclosure, its enactment is prevented because it, scrolls are sealed. If a, a scroll's sealed, a king's seal is on it, you can't just open it. Somebody ha- who's entitled to open it has to open it. And there's only one person entitled to open the purposes of God in history. Who's that? The Lamb. The Lamb takes the scroll. Now he's a lion and a lamb and all the rest of it. Of course he is because it's all imagery. But Jesus is moving through history in the events that happen. Despite all the things that go on, despite the apparent awfulness of much of it, Jesus is still Lord. God is in control. And in fact, it's being unveiled to God's agenda. History is being unveiled to God's agenda. The one who is worthy, the Lamb of God, is breaking the seals one by one and releasing events that will take this world to its conclusion when Jesus comes back. So whatever's happening, call it the Roman Emperor, call it Hitler, call it ISIS, call it what you like, God is still in control. And they are part of the demonic forces that have been released and the purposes of God are not thwarted by them. And, and as they are released, there is a pattern, there is a chronology, but it's not one that you can get in detail. Step by step by step, it's moving towards conclusion. So that the final seals have that sense of being the end, the return of Christ. The one I read, sixth seal, it's, and then on to the seventh. So it's almost like that takes the period right through to the climax when Jesus, the Lamb, is also the judge. And we'll come to that in a moment. The next one. The lamb is judge of all. And that is quite a challenge. If you weren't dealing with pictures, who on earth would think of generals and kings being frightened of an angry lamb? So, oh no, here comes an angry lamb. So obviously we are dealing with something very symbolic and picturey. They all say, hide me from the wrath of the Lamb. And what is coming through here is that Jesus is not only Lord of all, he will be judge of all. And one day, every knee will bow to him. And are you going to bow now in delight and in surrender, or one day bow in terror 
When the day of judgment comes, that's the message behind this. Jesus is the lamb, but there is a wrath of the lamb. 6 verse 16. They called on the mountains, etc. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Now, there is an important truth here. Jesus is the one who loves us. He loves us and who died for our sins. Jesus suffered for our sins. And so he is one qualified to bring this judgment. And he is one qualified to tell you that there is a judgment coming. The simple fact is, if you don't meet Jesus as your saviour now, you will meet him as your judge in the future. That is a fact, a fact of history, a fact of spiritual reality. You can, and I pray you all have, and if you haven't, you can this morning, embrace Jesus, if you like, meet him as your saviour and Lord. But if you don't, one day you'll meet him and you will experience the wrath of the Lamb. Now, we just need to say, well, you know, are you saying God's just angry, loses his temper? There's a lot about wrath, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And it's good it is, and it's nothing to do with being politically correct and saying everybody wins, because it doesn't work that way. God is actually angry at sin. Now, this wrath is not like our wrath. It's not like he loses his temper, he has a bad day, you know, someone broke something and he's got cross. It's nothing like that. It's more like judicial wrath. I don't know if you could say this, but you could say it, that if someone is a criminal and breaks the law, they come to court, they're tried, they are proven guilty, and then they, are, they experience the wrath of the law which means they are put in prison. It's not that the judge gets angry. The judge hasn't got to get in a strop in order to do it, like, I must be angry for it. No, the judge, there's a calm, sadly, a, a ruthless calm sometimes. You are guilty. You experience the wrath of the law. That's a picture. But we're talking about something similar. We're not talking about God just being funny or being touchy. But he is just and true in all his ways. There are some huge problems that the holy, righteous God has with humanity and our sin and rebellion. And actually, he has provided a very thorough answer for us, which we're going to look at in a moment in the next point. But if we don't find the answer God's got, his just, righteous ways will be like wrath to us. They will be a judgment. They will be a judgment on us. Let's move on to the next one. The Lamb, the Suffering Saviour. In these chapters, I'm sorry, am I spitting into this? I'm probably getting carried away. In these chapters, there's a lot of suffering and pain and death, actually, and fear. Now, you could say, well, that's not very nice. Well, actually, that's realistic. These are chapters about the state of our world. I think sometimes we in... We, we are very privileged. I feel very privileged. In most other ages, I'd already be dead at my age. You know, I'm privileged to be in a, have a good diet, healthy. I, I, you know, I've got a roof over my head, a very nice roof over my head. I, I got the health service. Mary and I, you know, I went yesterday to Hastings, my daughter. We visited family, visited Mary's family. She's got a horrible, um, you know, really nasty sinusitis. Goes to a, a, a drop-in health centre without having to pay. You get antibiotics, out you come, and she'll be better by Monday. You know, what a privilege to live in a place like that. 
What a privilege. We are fairly unusual in the perspective of not only history, but even of the world as it is today. You only have to watch your television to see that. And so actually, this world is full of a lot of pain and turmoil and fear. And we do know that. We're not without knowledge of that. But it's a lot worse than we experience for many people. And so actually, this is a very, very important concept to get from Revelation, if I might put it that way. In a way, Revelation takes on the subject of suffering head on. And it says things like this. This, yes, this world is and will be full of trouble and trauma until the end comes. Yes, the devil is very active in that and is behind a lot of it. Yes, human sin plays a major part in contributing to it. And yes, God knows all about it. He permits it. Some of it has his now judgment in it and he overrules in it all as part of his ongoing interaction with man towards the climax of history. The true and living God does not duck responsibility for what's happening on earth. That hasn't come out in Revelation. God is undoing the seals. And there is a sense in which he has a bigger agenda than our comfort. And then there's this other thing in uh, Revelation 7.14, it talks about the, the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their, um, I don't want to put that one up yet. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Well, again, it's clearly imagery, isn't it? Whoever washed a clothes in blood and they came out white. So this is a truth that's being hinted at and explained. That actually Jesus' suffering and his death bring hope, healing, and cleansing for us and for all who will trust in him. There is a deep truth here which we really do need to carefully get. Somehow, sin is such a deep problem that even God himself couldn't deal with it without suffering. So suffering and sin are closely aligned. God, the just and holy one, could not get rid of the sin problem without himself bearing our sins through his son. The lamb's blood is what cleanses us. So the one opening the seals is the one who shed his blood as well and suffered at the hands of men and of demons and you could argue at the hands of the father when he took our sin and the judgment against it. And it was his punishment that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. No wounds, no healing. It is as deep as that. It's like, well, why can't God just get rid of suffering? Well, clearly he can't. It has to be paid for. It has to be atoned for. It has to be reversed. No wounds, no healing. But Jesus has got wounds, and there is healing and wholeness. And it's a powerful message that comes out again. So when we ask the question, why does God allow suffering... I don't think we're ever able to fully, this side of heaven, answer it. But I can tell you what the answer isn't. The answer isn't that God is not good enough, that God is not strong enough, that God is not loving enough, that God is too distant and disconnected to bother. None of those things are the answer to why is suffering allowed? Because God is actually suffering himself. He's involved in it himself. The lamb's blood tells us that. 
that the only way is washing the blood of the lamb. So actually, God is a caring, loving, involved, engaged God. There are some other things you won't understand this side of heaven, but you cannot keep shaking your fist at God and saying, if he was real or good, he wouldn't do this. That's not how the world is. He's got answers for you, but they're involved. He's a God who gets his hands dirty. Involved with us. By his wounds, you can be healed. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, the Bible tells us. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God did not get himself off the hook, as Phil Moore writes. God did not get himself off the hook when it comes to suffering. He placed himself firmly on the hook at Calvary in order that he could ensure that suffering and sin was fully dealt with. God put himself on the hook. The blood of the Lamb ensures that those who receive Jesus as Lord will ultimately be in this place, Revelation 7, 15 and 17. It says, They are before the throne of God, serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd, He will lead them to springs of water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Our last point, another incongruity. The lamb is the shepherd. I thought shepherds looked after lambs. No, no, not when you're in an apocalyptic vision. The lamb is the shepherd. And actually, this reminds us that Jesus is the good shepherd. Those who trust in Jesus will know him as their shepherd, not as their judge, but as their shepherd. The lamb who is at the center of the universe can be your shepherd. That's good, isn't it? Isn't that worth knowing? It may be a lot kicking off all around you, horrible-looking locusts thrashing through the sky, but actually the lamb who's on the throne is my shepherd. Hallelujah. He lives as my shepherd now, and he will be my shepherd through eternity. He leads me by springs of living water. He feeds me. He guides me. He guards me. This relationship is full and rich. And all, all who follow the Lamb, all who know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, will be at this great event. This is my last scripture. Can you pop it up? Revelation 7, 9 and 10. We read it earlier, but let's look at it again. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Do you know, I'm going to be there. I'm not sure quite how it's going to be. But I'm going to be there, and you can be there as well. This is future. See, some of it's future. A lot of it's future. This is future. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, if you're saying that now, that song, you'll be saying it then. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. You know, that's, that's who I worship. It's, it's, I'm in his hands. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. Now, I'm not sure we'll get a palm branch. There'll be angels with great big bunches handing them out at the door. Because it's apocalyptic literature. But it's not about nothing. None of this is about nothing. So the lamb is not like, oh, it's all so sort of funny. It doesn't exist. It does exist. 
Jesus Christ is a real person. He died, he rose again. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's the lamb who was slain. And he's now the Lord of history. And he's actually our good shepherd. And we will know him and see him one day and be with him. Isn't that not good? That is good. And we'll be dressed in white robes. And we'll be together with every other follower of the Lamb, millions upon millions, I dare to say billions. We'll be there, gathered, innumerable by our understanding, before the Lamb. And yet he will know each one of us, because he does. So it's not like you're lost in a massive crowd. There's something, that's why you need apocalyptic visions. Because how do you put this all together? How do you, and I'll tell you, you do. So this chapter has got 144,000 and people go to weird places with that. What that's telling you is this number, though it's a numberless, it's the same group. It's the same group. And it's another way of telling you, but actually God knows exactly how many there are and he knows exactly where they come from. It's a group that by God's uh, knowledge is fully known. He'll know about each one of you and he knows your story. But in another way, from our point of view, we're just part of this wonderful, wonderful, mighty army of people washed in the blood of the Lamb. And he knows every number. And there will be a completeness to the number. From God's perspective, it will be complete. 144,000 is all about completeness. 12 12s and all the rest of it. And it will be complete. The people of God, that's what it is, the people of the Lamb, complete in heaven. This is your future if you follow Jesus. At the moment, thank God, the gospel is still open. The end has not yet come. And some of the events in these chapters and other chapters in Revelation have not yet occurred, including the one where the wrath of the Lamb comes and, the, and everybody has to hide from it if they don't know him as their saviour and friend and shepherd. You can today, if you haven't already, make sure you know the Lamb as your friend and redeemer and shepherd and saviour. It's as easy as asking him to take you as, as you are. You don't have to tidy yourself up. don't have to get holy. Just say, Lord, forgive me for all the things I've done wrong. Please, Lord, I want you to be my saviour, my Lord. I come to you. Take me as your own. Come and live in me by your spirit. You could do that this morning as we break bread. If you've never done it and don't want to do it this morning, then please just don't take the bread and wine because it won't mean anything to you because the bread and wine is for those who already know the lamb and have understood what it means that we're washed in his blood. I mean, that sounds weird if you don't understand, but when you know it, that's how apocalyptic works. It's not weird when you know what it's about. It's not weird at all. It's only weird when you're outside. When you're inside, it makes sense. Like a wrathful lamb makes sense. So actually, you can come in and make sense for you this morning. You don't need to feel outside. 